0: This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Where do you find peace and contentment. When do you feel perfectly in your element? Is it on a mountain bike, cruising through the woods? Are you a runner who finds solace in putting one foot in front of the other, mile after mile? Is it in your kitchen, trying out a new recipe? Or is it on a trip to a new place, to somewhere you've meant to pilgrimage for some time? Today's topic is the book, Zen on the Trail. Hiking as Pilgrimage, with Dr. Christopher Ives from Stonehill College in Massachusetts. Zen on the Trail is not just about Zen, though. It's about human beings and where we are able to find our solace. Dr. Ives finds his in the forests of the world, and this book is about his ritualization and meditative act of hiking. Christopher Ives teaches in the area of Asian religions, and in his scholarship, he focuses on modern Zen ethics. In 2009, he published Imperial Way Zen, a book on Buddhist social ethics in light of Zen nationalism. Currently, he is engaged in research on Zen approaches to nature and Buddhist environmental ethics. He's the author of numerous books, articles, and book chapters on Zen ethics, and his work appears in the Journal of Buddhist Ethics, the Eastern Buddhist, the Japanese Journal of Religious Studies, and elsewhere. He serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Buddhist Ethics. His new book, Zen on the Trail, Hiking as Pilgrimage, is out now from Wisdom Publications. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Christopher Ives. Dr. Chris Ives, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you for having me, Greg. I am really delighted to talk to you today. And I wonder if you can just start by introducing yourself briefly for the audience.
1: Yes, I'm a professor at Stonehill College, which is a Catholic liberal arts college, about 25 miles south of Boston. And my main area of expertise is Zen, Buddhism, and ethics. So as a scholar, I work in the area of Buddhist studies.
0: Excellent. I'm kind of curious about what some of your areas of like academic research are. Like, What do you mostly write about in your academic portion of your life?
1: Over the years, my focus um, has been primarily on Japanese Zen Buddhism and ethical resources there, um, ethical issues. In 2009, I completed a long period of research focusing on Zen support for Japanese nationalism during World War II. Uh, which gets into facets of the tradition that a lot of people in the West aren't aware of. You know, we often have idealized notions of Zen being detached and maybe hermits in the mountains writing haiku poems. Um, But actually in Japanese history, Zen Buddhism has been a, a fairly conservative religious institution, often working very closely with ruling powers. And then uh, over the past eight or nine years, um, my focus has still been on Buddhist ethics, but I've been looking more at uh, Buddhism, Buddhist views of nature and environmental ethics, um, especially as Buddhists start to write about and get involved in activism around issues like the climate crisis.
0: Excellent. You know, what's really interesting about what you just said is that I I often heard about Zen growing up as Zen being something like, oh, it's so Zen, chill out. And then I started looking a lot more into like Rinzai as I started actually studying and talking to people on this show. And then they were talking about how it's the warrior class and the samurai and they would use it as a sort of training for focus. And I thought that that was so fascinating and completely against the odds of what Westerners thought of as actually being Zen because we tend to Uh, misunderstand it greatly.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. There are two types of Zen, Rinzai and Soto Zen. And the Rinzai tradition was very strong when Zen was introduced to Japan in the 1200s. And what was interesting at that time was the fact that there had been a major change in political power in Japan with the emergent warrior class who basically took power from traditional aristocrats who were there backing the imperial system And so in the 1200s, you have these new warrior rulers, um, in some cases, wanting to have um, backing from religion and also wanting to have cultural credentials um, to show other Japanese they weren't um, what the stereotype held with regard to them, which was that they were these sort of country bumpkin warriors who came into the refined capital of Kyoto and seized power. So, what was interesting, there's a whole tradition in Japan of Buddhism supporting uh, rulers through rituals for the protection of the country, the protection of the leaders, um, but also the Samurai pulled from this recently imported Zen from, um, from China as a way to give them cultural credentials. So when we often think about Zen and the arts in Japan, whether haiku, um, tea ceremony, rock gardens, landscape painting, a lot of that occurred in the 1200s where these newly um, yeah, in power samurai folks were trying to show that they had cultural savvy by basically patronizing these arts that came in with Zen from China. And then it just continued from there with Rinzai Zen often being um, in close relationship with these ruling warrior governments.
0: What are a couple of the titles of the books that you've written throughout your career? Because I know you have a lot of stuff within your academic sort of catalog.
1: My first book was actually a reworking of my Ph.D. dissertation, and that's entitled Zen Awakening in Society. And that grew out of my graduate studies at Claremont Graduate School outside Los Angeles. Um, And what I was doing there was working not only with a Japanese Zen philosopher Uh, that I had followed from Japan. Basically, after my undergraduate studies at Williams College in Massachusetts, I went to Japan as an English teacher. My main focus was trying to get over there to practice Zen. Being a teacher paid the bills. And uh, after five years of studying and practicing Zen in Kyoto, I followed Masao Abe, spelled like Abe, like Abe Lincoln, a Zen philosopher to Claremont and worked with him and some Christian theologians who were very interested in Buddhist-Christian dialogue and comparative religious philosophy. And in that milieu, um, I was encouraged to continue with my interest in in Zen and ethics and write a PhD dissertation that would be uh, basically a Zen social ethic. And that is my first book. And then there are a couple edited volumes, a couple book-length translations I've done. But the second book that really focuses on my own personal interest is the 2009 volume I mentioned earlier. And that's entitled Imperial Way Zen, uh, which is actually an expression for that Zen I described a minute ago. Zen in close collaboration with the state, the military, um, the handlers of the emperor during World War II. So that book focused on um, that aspect of Zen ethics. And then recently, as I mentioned, I've been looking at Buddhism and environmental ethics. And I do have a manuscript that is not fully scholarly, but fairly scholarly. I'm writing it for more of a general audience. And that I'll probably be completing next summer. And then along the way, I wrote Zen on the Trail, the book we're talking about today, which really pulls from my expertise, but is a non-academic book uh, that in large part I wrote for myself to clarify how hiking for me over the years has been a kind of spiritual practice, heavily colored by my study and practice of Zen.
0: Excellent. Um, what sort of is your spiritual timeline throughout the life? Like, what have you dabbled in? Because as a religious studies scholar, I see so many influences in Zen on the Trail, but what have you personally explored throughout your life?
1: I was brought up a Congregationalist, one Protestant dominant denomination in rural Connecticut in my hometown of Litchfield, Connecticut— But I was, uh, unfortunately for my parents, kind of a 60s kid Mm -hmm. and questioning a lot of things. So that didn't totally click for me. There were certain things um, I relished about it, but it really didn't become my own personal path. And then when I moved from Litchfield up to Williamstown, Massachusetts, to go to college at Williams College, um, it was there that I learned about Zen and actually the uh, Congregationalist Protestant uh, chaplain at Williams did a course on Zen practice where we meditated in his living room every morning and cross country ski- skied every afternoon. This is a special course he would offer in the month of January. And that's when I became interested in Zen. That was back in 1974. And that's pretty much been in terms of my own personal path, my main focus ever since over the past 44 or 45 years uh, But insofar as I've been curious about a lot of traditions, and most recently especially about pilgrimage traditions across religions, and insofar as I've been a scholar of
0: religion—I'm
1: going to do this again. Sorry, Greg. It's okay. Uh, So over the years, as a scholar of religion, I have obviously looked at a lot of other traditions, you know, in graduate school doing that comparative work with— Christian and Jewish theology relative to Buddhist philosophy. And so over the years, yeah, I've been exposed to a lot of other traditions. I've been curious about them, especially recently, their pilgrimage traditions. And I've always taught at undergraduate colleges rather than at research universities. And as you probably know, academics at colleges will not necessarily get spread thin, but will cover various bases rather than just being in a graduate program at a research university with a very narrow focus, like in my case, just working on Japanese Zen or whatever. And so over the years, I've taught a number of world religion survey courses that have in many ways stretched me to learn more about Islam, Judaism, um, Hinduism, and so a lot of that is reflected in the book, where my own interests in these other traditions, my knowledge of those traditions, um, gave me some resources to integrate into the book, where I'm talking about different religions and their pilgrimages, or their sacred mountain traditions, or meditative or contemplative states. So um, in some ways, yeah, I was pulling mainly from my interest in Zen, but also pulling from these other traditions to give the book um, a sort of variety and um, and in some ways to give readers who may not be that interested in Zen, they may be hikers who are Christian or Jewish or Muslim, you know, to give them some parts of the book where they can relate it to their own experience, their own tradition, rather than making it a straight-up Zen piece without you know much treatment of any other religion.
0: I'm curious, whenever you were in Japan studying Zen Did you get ordained over there, or did you just practice as a lay practitioner?
1: Yeah, I was there as a lay practitioner. I was in one of the major Zen monasteries there in Kyoto, but I wasn't in there with the monks in training who have that very rigorous, um, sustained several-year training, and yes, in effect, an ordination process. Uh, It was a lay group, um, some of whom were Zen philosophers teaching at Kyoto universities who had done extensive practice. And we did meet in one of the sub temples of this large monastic complex called Myoshinji Shinji there in Kyoto. But no, I was never ordained and, uh, Though that was my main focus, the practice of Zen while I was over there, um, I did not become a monk with a shaved head, with a you know specific Zen master mm-hmm. in a lineage. Um, I was mainly practicing with this group, which had actually been started by a lay Zen teacher around the time of World War
0: II. Excellent. Okay. So <laughs> excuse me, throat clearing. So in the book, you mention a home zendo in your attic. And I'm kind of curious like, what your practice is like day to day. Very briefly, like, do you have a sitting group or a sangha that you meet with? Or do you kind of like fly solo?
1: I'm mainly right now flying solo. Over the years, I did have um, that group in Kyoto I just mentioned. Uh, when I was a graduate student in LA there in Claremont in the early 80s, I practiced at the Mount Baldy Zen Center up in the mountains above Claremont, east of L.A. there in the San Gabriel Mountains. And over the years, there was one group when I was up in the Seattle area uh, after grad school, pretty much completed my Ph.D. in 1987, and then got a job at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. And there was a Zen group in Seattle that I sat with occasionally, but I didn't become a full member Uh, So to a large extent, yeah, I have been flying solo. And my wife and I, we live here in Watertown, Massachusetts, which is about three miles due west of Harvard Square. And we live on the second floor of a house. It's kind of an up-down, two-unit condo. And we have the attic because we're on the second floor. And the previous owner was actually a bluegrass guitar player. And she walled off one section of the attic with a big dormer window as a little unheated room where she could practice her guitar. Mm. And once we bought this space from them, um, my wife and I turned it into kind of a a Zen practice yoga stretching place up there in the attic. So uh, that is my place where I do my sitting.
0: Nice. So we're going to dive into the book here but in just a second, but I want to see if we have any degrees of connection between you and me because of Mount Baldy. I've had a couple people that have gone to Mount Baldy for many, many years on the show, and I'm curious if you've, if you've ever run across shows on Jack Hobner, that's his nom de plume, or another monk at Mount Baldy named Sato Ray Ronci. Do either of those names ring a bell?
1: The second name doesn't, but um, Jack's work, yeah, I've... I think I have one of his books. It's in my stack of unread books, and I'm familiar with him. He's been fairly prolific recently as a writer. Yeah. Um, But the second individual, no, I don't think we crossed paths. I left L.A. to go up to that position in Washington State in... yeah, basically 1987. So I have not sat or practiced with them for 30 years, 31 years at this point.
0: Cool. Well, something that you I might suggest on this show is if you go to my episodes list and you find number 16, Sato Ray Ronsi practiced with uh, Sasaki Roshi for about 40 years, and he is a professor of English now at Mizzou in Missouri, and he won a Penn Award for his poetry collection, which is pretty cool.
1: Well, if he practiced for 40 years, it's a very good chance that we were in retreats together. But, uh, yeah, Zen retreats, as you know, are not necessarily venues for socializing. (laughs) So he may have been next to me on the cushions um, on several retreats, and I just never really got to know him. Or perhaps my memory is failing here in my early 60s. Who knows?
0: Excellent. Well, I I love that earlier that you mentioned that you were starting to write more for a general audience because your new book... Um, zen on the trail hiking as pilgrimage out now from wisdom is just that it's so fantastic and i just finished reading it and i'm excited to have you on the show to talk about it and the first thing i want to ask you is I'm, i'm particularly intrigued by the subtitle of your book which is hiking as pilgrimage and earlier you mentioned your academic interest in pilgrimage so how has pilgrimage of any kind played a shaping role over the course of your life
1: that's an excellent question, and I'm glad you enjoyed the book. If I think back to maybe when I was a freshman in college, when if we want to talk about you know the advent of my own sort of spiritual seeking or my sense of uh, yeah mystery and my curiosity getting peaked, I do recall that back then, that would have been around 1972. Um, In pretty short order, as I started um, reading various books, trying uh, meditation, it was in my sophomore year that I did that course I mentioned earlier with the Zen meditation and cross-country skiing. And pretty early on, I started talking about being on a path. And I remember I had some other friends who were, you know, fellow curious undergraduate seekers. And as you know, back in the early 70s, which you know, for all intents and purposes, was sort of the tail end of the 60s. Uh, There were a lot of us talking about being, you know, seekers on a path. And I think, um, and I don't know if this predates college, you know, going back to my childhood. I wasn't a big reader, so it wasn't like I was steeped in mythology and, you know, epic hero narratives and journey narratives. But I've always resonated with the archetype of the seeker going on a spiritual journey, Um, And I think for me as a kid, again, I wasn't much of a reader, but I did spend a lot of time going out into the woods. And um, I think that idea of going out into, you know, the woods and lions and tigers and bears, oh, my spirits or elves or whatever was there in my uh, eight year old imagination, uh, that that sense of, you know, the journey out into the unknown was probably there at some level in my psyche as a little kid. But then, yeah, by the time or when I got to college, that sense of journey and seeking mystery may um constellated as a notion of being on a path. And so, you know, that's in many ways what propelled me after college off to Japan, uh, the sense of wanting to go there, um, explore Zen more deeply and when i initially went i thought i was going to be a psychotherapist i'd been a mainly a psychology major in college at one point a psych uh religious studies double major but i ultimately dropped the religious studies part in my junior year and so when i applied for that job teaching english in japan and went off to japan uh, my image was to go to japan for a year or two practice then, and then do my sort of personal Marco Polo around the world, you know, go to India, go on a trek up to Mount Everest and do all sorts of, you know, wild and interesting things. Um, As it turned out, I was um, in Japan for five years and didn't do that epic journey until I took a year off from grad school a few years later. Um, But at that point, through all of that, I don't know that pilgrimage was really You know, kind of a working construct. It was more kind of being on a path. And the pilgrimage, I think, really came in and ultimately came into the subtitle, as you mentioned, Hiking as Pilgrimage, um, in recent years. Because as I mentioned earlier, over the past 30, 35 years, I've been a college professor teaching at undergraduate liberal arts colleges in several places it seems that wherever I've taught, there's been a required first-year course in the core curriculum for students on religion. And the way I've always done that, as a member of several religious studies departments that have to offer these courses, I've always done it as a world religion survey course. And about 10 years ago, um, I shifted the content of the course from basically let's look at four or five major traditions like Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and really drill down in terms of beliefs and practices. And I decided about 10 or 12 years ago uh, to thematize the course around the theme of pilgrimage um, as a kind of religious practice that is a journey, that is a kind of seeking leaving the comfort of home or leaving the comfort of your home you know, church, synagogue, or mosque, and going out to these powerful places across the world where the religion started, or there had been some major sacred event in history or whatever. And so in terms of my teaching, yeah, I started um, looking at different religions in that course around the theme of pilgrimage. And that was part to, uh, you know, keep my own interest fully in the course as, again, uh, someone who had been kind of um, a seeker for 30, 40 years. But also what I was trying to do, and I don't know, you may have noticed this with your students, Greg. But back when I was an undergraduate, we were all kind of seekers. We were all curious. Again, it was the tail end of the 60s, yes. asking questions, you know, everything, like you said earlier, oh, Zen or yoga or Let's yeah. go to India. And so just in general, undergraduates had that spark, that curiosity. And increasingly, um, and recently, I've noticed as undergrads, and, you know, part of it is the cost of higher education, anxiety about student debt, which is a real issue, as you well know, oh yeah, um, and students thinking more about, okay, what course should I take? Will this help me get a job? Um, it's not quite that simple, especially at liberal arts colleges, but that's been the trend, and so what I've been doing is thinking, okay, a lot of my students have to take this course in their first year. they don't necessarily want to take it, but maybe if I have this theme of pilgrimage. I can kind of try to connect with the seeker that may not be on the surface, but I trust is somewhere there inside of my, you know, 18 year old first year students. And so the shift to pilgrimage, my teaching for those reasons, uh, played itself out in terms of writing this book about hiking. You know, originally I was thinking about, as I mentioned earlier, laying down, the type of practices I do on the trail or how my kind of contemplative approach to being the woods that was there, maybe since I was a kid has been colored by my interest in practice of Zen over the years. And then as I started thinking about how to structure the narrative of the book, I thought, okay, yeah, maybe I will think of this as a kind of pilgrimage uh, which, you know, in terms of the traditional Archetype of pilgrimage is leaving the comfort of home, going across the world, uh, assuming the risk, the cost, the time commitment um, in that sort of spiritual desire to connect more deeply with the sacred or reconnect with a part of yourself you may have lost touch with and thinking about how going off into the woods as a kind of, at least for some people, a sort of sacred space that's separate from normal everyday life with the stresses, the distractions, the materialism, whatever, um, kind of fits the paradigm of pilgrimage, leaving home, going off to a powerful, beautiful, maybe even sacred place, and then returning with whatever benefits or boons you might have acquired in the process.
0: Yeah, and you know, what's really interesting to me about everything you just said is that You can go far, far, far away. You can go thousands of miles. On a recent episode, I talked to somebody who traveled to the International Buddhist Conclave. Her name is Andrea Miller. She's an editor at Lion's Roar. And she went all the way to India to see the Buddhist sacred sites. And then in your book, you have this extremely localized experience where you're just getting in your car and you're describing driving down the road and you're not even going far away so that you can almost have this local experience of pilgrimage just in a, all of our own backyards, which obviously cuts down a lot of worry on traveling around the world and thousands of dollars in plane tickets and airports. And But we, we can have these experiences right where we are or very far away.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, as you know, and this may come up in your own teaching with your students, Greg, a lot of people say if you're starting to write something, in addition to knowing what it is you want to write about one of the good rules of thumb is being clear about who your audience might be. And as I started writing the book, again, I was mainly writing it for myself as an exercise in trying to clarify how a lot of my studies of religion over the years might resonate with what I experience in the woods and uh, sort of articulate that. And then basically, um, yeah, what started happening was – I was thinking, okay, if I'm primarily writing it for myself, and this is a book about backpacking. The next thought was, well, who might read this? And I think my initial impulse was to write it for other backpackers or for the nephews I often rope into going off with me, um, in large part to get them to carry the heavy stuff like the the tent and the stove. Um, And basically, as I kept writing the book, I said, wait a sec, this isn't just about, you know, me or my healthy and hearty nephews that want to go out in the woods with me and carry the extra weight. Uh, Maybe this should be a book for people who just like getting out in the nature, whether it's walking in a local state park or maybe even through Central Park in New York. And then the next thought was, yeah, maybe if you really think about this, like you were just saying, you know, in some respects, if this book – And this is the kind of ethical agenda in the book, uh, not just wanting to share a lot of cool stuff about pilgrimage traditions or reflect on Zen and the trail or a spirituality of hiking, um, but also to help people um, connect with nature, or as I say in the book, um, not simply connect with nature as something over there in kind of a dualistic way, But to get outside and realize oneself in nature as nature, Mm -hmm. and realize that we are nature happening here in our bodies, in this web of relationships, this energy field, if you will. And so, as I continued writing the book, what I realized was yeah, I want this to be a book for a variety of readers, not just super fit backpackers, um, including people like um, my elderly mother who might only be stepping out into her little garden in front of her condo in Connecticut, certainly not strapping on the hiking boots and, you know, hitting the Appalachian trail up in the Northwest corner of Connecticut. And so increasingly I shifted the focus from let's go to these epic wilderness places in Alaska kind of thing, or the Mount Everest base camp and thinking more locally. And in that way, um, really working with this theme of being nature in your place and also expanding the readership to, you know, folks who aren't necessarily going to put on a 30-pound backpack and start hiking up some steep switchbacks. And so at the end of the book, yes, in the return part, that kind of third stage of pilgrimage, if you have the departure and then the time on the road and then the return back home, um, I really am thinking about maybe the lesson learned on the trail where you realize that I'm an animal in nature. You know, I'm breathing carbon dioxide that t- the trees around me use in photosynthesis to give oxygen back to me in that kind of air cycle or out there in the hydrological cycle as you take water out of a stream, you purify it, you drink it, you pee in the woods, and you're part of these larger cycles. And thinking about how that enhanced sense of being embedded in nature as you walk on the trail embodied uh, there in nature as nature can also play out back at home, like where I live in the semi-urban town of Watertown, Massachusetts. And so part of the book toward the end is I'm really working with this theme of yeah, plugging into local nature. And this in part um, reflects one of the people that's a huge influence on the book, the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and sort of ecological visionary Gary Snyder, uh, who has a very famous prose piece called Reinhabitation, where he argues the importance of people really committing to place, knowing their local place, the flora, the fauna, the natural history, the indigenous people that lived there before settler colonialists possessed the land, basically stole the land in many cases, and really pushing that n- importance of inhabiting a place, knowing it deeply, the geology, the hydrology, the flora, the fauna, um, and again, the local people that lived there before Europeans arrived, You know, at least if we're talking about North America here. And uh, so that was one theme that I was playing with at the end of the book, um, plugging into nature as nature in your local place, which anyone can do. You may be, you know, in your wheelchair, just going out um, down the sidewalk, or you may be there, you know, looking out your window at the tree in your nursing home. And to give all people, not just, you know, super fit, you know, mobile people, um, Yeah, a sense or a way to connect with nature, but all of us, our physical abilities or disabilities um, can cultivate this, you know, in our local place, even if you can't walk, even if you can't, again, put on hiking boots and go bounding up the trail.
0: I love that you brought up Snyder um, because this book is like strewn with literary references for people that have inspired you throughout your life. And so, like, I was just poking through a couple pages on 82 and 83, and I found Wordsworth, Coleridge, the Romantics, Thoreau, Emerson, Hemingway. And then you constantly have a theme of referring back to Gary Snyder, who wrote the preface, who wrote a short piece in the preface of the book, and also the conservationist John Muir, who people might know um, from Muir Woods north of San Francisco. What is it about these folks that have spoken to you throughout the course of your life, so much so that you sort of pay um, homage to them throughout the entirety of this book?
1: Yeah, a few of them, like the English romantics, a lot of that was me over the years reading and uh, finding you know, very good statements that I could use as sort of juicy quotations for yeah. the book. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I wasn't really uh, a very literary kid. And so it's not like I I read their poems extensively and sort of swam in those waters and it's reflected in the manuscript. That's more integrating little statements by them that I have found compelling. But in the case of um, Snyder, yes, he's been a kind of uh, role model for me. Um, an indirect teacher. I mean, I've had contact with him over the years um, in correspondence about some of our shared interest about Zen and nature, environmental issues. Uh, I did not really discover Snyder until I think when I was living in Japan and maybe in grad school, even though he was very famous when I was an undergraduate in the early 70s. Um, But, yeah, we've corresponded over the years. My wife and I visited him at his home in the Sierras um, in Nevada City, California, about eight years ago. And in many cases, yes, he's been not only a practitioner of Zen or a person who brings Zen into his poetry and into his prose pieces, but he's been someone who has really had his eye on the ball in terms of possible resources in the Zen tradition for, yes, connecting with nature in certain ways, being in nature in certain ways, a certain kind of ecological living, which, as I mentioned earlier, has been one of my interests. So in some senses, yes, he's been a, a mentor, uh, though a mentor far away, not necessarily you know, in the same room. And in another sense, yeah, we've sort of been on parallel tracks. Um, I've realized over the years that, you know, he grew up on a farm uh, in the Pacific Northwest, north of, north of Seattle, did a lot of mountaineering, worked as a fire lookout in the North Cascades, and then eventually going to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, and then Berkeley for some graduate work, and then right off to Japan in the 1950s to practice then. And my own life has had a similar trajectory. When I was an undergraduate getting interested in Zen and deciding to go to Japan. I wasn't aware of Snyder, but then later I realized, oh, okay, here's a kindred spirit. Um, and yeah, my own insight, my own writing, don't even come close to Gary. So I, I do pay homage to him, as mm-hmm. you were saying, and and you know, certainly do not see myself as carrying on any legacy or you know, being someone you know like Gary Snyder. Uh, he's someone I very much look up to, and. You know, that's there, as you said, Evan, in the book, where I'm probably quoting him on every third or fourth page. And so I do draw very much his teaching, his insight, um, and because of my own life and my own interests, yeah, very much resonate with him. And so he is the main figure that, you know, I'm drawing from in the book. You know, there are one or two Japanese Zen figures like Dogen that pop up here and there, but in terms of, uh, yeah, more contemporary figures – um yeah, he is someone I respect and look up to. So,
0: Another thing I really love about the book is that this is, I mean, Zen is in a lot of the book, but this is much more than just about Zen. Like if you go anywhere in the book, I was able to find references to just on 75, 76, 77 on three pages, Lakota, Mesoamerica, Tibetan Bon religion, Jainism, Hinduism, Islam, Shintoism, and Buddhism. So you obviously have an appreciation for all religious practices and religious literacy in general. And something that's super interesting to me about that is you can take this notion of pilgrimage, which you do very well by lacing it around Zen, but you can also draw a straight line to cultures around the world and the way that all people can attached to these concepts and how it uh, draws like a connection between people who are very, very different from all parts of the world. And it kind of connects our humanity. Were you kind of going for that?
1: Um, Not necessarily in any conscious way. I think it was more really laying down a certain approach to hiking as pilgrimage as colored by Zen and wanting to bring in certain things I saw in other traditions that resonated with this or that point uh, I was making in the narrative. Um, That's by way of saying, yeah, I'm not necessarily, um, even though I used the word archetype earlier, I'm not necessarily um, someone who's in the lineage of Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst, or, for example, Joseph Campbell. Um, There was one reviewer of the book who actually said This book is sort of structured like the Joseph Campbell hero journey. Um, I was actually structuring it more around an anthropologist named Victor Turner, who has a three-stage theory of ritual that you can apply to pilgrimage. And that's the idea of separation from society, being in what he calls this liminal or marginal state, kind of a sacred bubble in a place and a time separate from normal social life, and then the return um, and so I wasn't necessarily trying to do a Jungian archetype, you know, Joseph Campbell style. Oh, look, you know, there is this um, journey motif or archetype or paradigm that's there across religions. Um, but I would say, yes, as I think you were um, implying there, Greg, this is a theme or a motif you see across religions. And yeah, if someone wants to do a kind of Jungian archetype, Joseph Campbell analysis. I really don't have problems with that, even though that's not a theoretical approach I do a lot with, um, because I do think that most religious traditions have this sense of um, journeying, taking on the risk, the danger, and going and, you know, whether it's slaying the dragon, getting the golden fleece, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, um, or enlightenment, salvation, you know, a closer connection to Christ or a closer connection to Allah, whatever that might be. And so I think that that journey motif is there across religions. Now, in some cases, it may be metaphorical. You know, we're really talking about a spiritual journey that does not involve or necessarily involve any spatial movement. Um, and I think sometimes the hero journey that Joseph Campbell made a lot of you know, I think there are some possible issues there in terms of gender and how in a lot of cultures, those sorts of journeys are the exclusive domain of boys going through initiation rites to become men. And the idea of the man is the hunter who leaves the village and goes far away while the women are there back home doing domestic things and doing the gathering as opposed to the hunting. Yeah. Aspects. yeah, the kind of let's go on an epic journey. Um, in a lot of cultures and maybe even in our own culture and who knows maybe even in me when i was younger there can be a lot of testosterone there there can be a lot of kind of male the young male that go out and be daniel boone or go out and be you know ulysses or something you know that sense of the the male um you know power over evil or power over you know whatever Is going bump in the night. Um, And so that's one reason where sometimes, you know, and I think I mentioned this in the book, the kind of the hero or warrior motif, you see a lot in um, language about the spiritual path. I can see why that's there. And ultimately, I think, you know, you're a warrior against, you know, internal things, whether it's your sinfulness, your desire, your selfishness, um, it's not necessarily a warrior out slaying other people. But I do think, yeah, that sometimes that kind of hero-warrior languaging slipping pretty quickly into some gender issues um, and, you know, harbors the risk that even though the spiritual path is often about letting go of ego and letting go of self-concern, the hero and archetype you know especially in our culture, um uh, which in many respects is a culture of violence, the hero and warrior arc- archetype can be something that actually pumps up male egos and leads to certain ethical issues like you know fist fights in the school
0: cafeteria, yeah. yeah. Okay, so in the book, you've got this like huge pilgrimage uh, process of leaving, entering the gate of a pilgrimage, letting go, ritualizing, appreciating the moment, returning, and then arriving back home. And there's a few of them that I really latched onto, and the first one is entering the gate, and I love the notion of the gate and entering like at a trailhead. And I was thinking back to all of my gates that I've used, my favorite being in McBain, Missouri, outside of Columbia, Missouri, entering onto a crushed stone trail called the Katy Trail. And the gate is like a disused railway bridge, so it's very symbolic and interesting. Um, Great. Yeah. What are some of your favorite gates that you've encountered in the past, and what makes you so happy when you go through those gates?
1: You know, I don't know what happens neurologically when you're basically transitioning, say, from a trailhead parking lot into the woods or you're in a neighborhood in Japan with stores and busyness and taxis and you're going through a gate to enter a more quiet um, temple complex. Um, So I think there may be something about, you know, the sort of neuropsychology of having a clear way to demarcate the distinction between secular mundane space and sacred space. You know, even though, especially in Zen, that dualism gets broken down, but, you know, at least for the sake of the argument, that sense of I'm leaving the humdrum of life and entering a more meditative or sacred space. And, you know, for me, that has resonated um, both in terms of, you know, as a hiker getting to a trailhead. And, you know, as you know, a lot of times, if it is a trail that's um, an established trail, not just the Appalachian Trail, but feeder trails here in New England or in the Rockies or in the Sierras or Cascades, you often have an information board right there at the trailhead, maybe a simple little map of the drainage or the ridge or the area you're about to hike up into, Uh, maybe some caution about, um, you know, ticks or bears or whatever. And um, I think for a lot of people, that's, you know, sort of a a spot, a physical thing that you look at. And then the clear sense is, okay, when I step beyond this, now I am entering the woods and maybe the world of ticks and bears and other (laughs) things. Um, And maybe that is a, a kind of a moment to sort of, you know, pause, maybe read what's on the message board, take a breath and, you know, at least subconsciously realize, okay, this thing is demarcating this passageway between the parking lot and roads and all of that other stuff. And, you know, nature's everywhere, but, you know, a, a wilder nature on the other side of the uh, message board. And one thing I, I sort of riff with in the book that I've, I've found fascinating uh, there is a Japanese character, it sounds mon, like M-O-N, uh, which does mean gate, including temple gate, or gate to someone's little backyard garden or whatever. Um, so gate in a generic sense. But it's also used in a Buddhist context to refer to teachings. And so the implication here with the character is, if you have a gate, and if that's somehow equated to teachings, the idea is the act of passing through that gate is an entering into the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, as it is um, lectured on or practiced in the space beyond the gate, which is usually the monastery. And so I was sort of playing with that in the book um, in terms of, yeah, different gates at the trailhead, um, demarcating, again, this distinction between, you know, Drum outside of it, and what goes on when you enter into the woods, which is more contemplative, etc, as you said wet it 's a no longer used railroad um, yeah. section um, it, interesting in terms of reclaiming the woods as opposed to you know trying to get into some ostensibly pristine wilderness, so I think that 's wonderful in terms of you know the way people will reclaim the woods that now has secondary growth after having been clear cut. And you know, species coming back, people enjoying it, um, but uh, yeah, there I can't think of any one specific gate that's uh, loomed in my life.
0: Okay, so one thing that the gate does for me is it allows me to concentrate, and concentrating on like a trail in 2018, going into 2019, it almost seems like a monumental task because of all the ways that our lives are set up for us to fail in concentration. So like in the book, you ceremonially ritualize some very simple actions, like setting up camp, you have a hiker chant of one step at a time during moments when pain is setting in or just the act of tending a fire. These moments in the book are like really utterly engrossing. And sometimes I make fires in my backyard fire pit here in Buffalo and before I know it 3 hours have gone by. And the fire is like five feet high and blazing away because I've been so focused on keeping that fire going and I just lose track <laughs> of time. You know, I just get yeah. in I get in the moment and I'm totally present in just staring into that fire. And it's amazing because I'm 35 and so I bounce around a lot with jobs and everything. And But it makes me feel like I'm 10 again. And... So I always appreciate little moments, but I struggle with those moments because I feel like they're so few and far between now. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about the simple act of ritualizing that is prevalent throughout the book? Because I feel like it's so important, and I was really thinking about how this is present in my own life these days.
1: Yeah, the ritualizing really does speak to what you were getting at in terms of, you know, one step at a time or very mindfully making a fire and how, as you said, as we enter into 2019, how challenging that is for so many of us. And in terms of working on the book and, you know, maybe eight or 10 years ago when I started thinking along these lines and trying to commit some of these ideas and inklings and experiences to writing, the sort of low-hanging fruit here in terms of Buddhism or Zen practice and hiking, one of them is the importance of paying attention. And so in some respects, if you think of meditation as getting us out of our um, obsessive thinking and worrying mind and shifting to a kind of calm awareness or a way of paying attention. I mean, nowadays we're in the middle of a big mindfulness boom and they're Many mindfulnesses out there, and people are talking about it different ways and packaging it in different ways. Um, but you know, if we want to come up with a generic sense of mindfulness as that awareness that's in the moment, paying attention, um, that's of course central to meditation and it's central to hiking um, both in terms of the need to pay attention you don't want to be distracted hiking along a trail with rocks and roots and places you could twist and sprain an ankle or have a bad fall Um, the act of hiking at least on most trails especially if you start going on a trail that's going up over rocks as you're climbing up something um, it really demands that you pay attention and then as many of us know if you get out for a walk, even if it isn't on a trail like that, that's more rugged, but just sort of getting out in the woods and perhaps getting into the rhythm of step, step, breath, breath, and that kind of rhythm of walking, that repetitive movement, um, the mind tends to, at least in most cases, calm down and bring us into an awareness that is more able to pay attention and at a of the worrying or stress that we were, you know, experiencing before we went for the walk. And I think that's, you know, so many people seem to be uh, calming and beneficial in that way. Um, this is a little bit of a digression, but it's also interesting to think about the various religious teachers and philosophies through history who've done a lot of their thinking and preaching while walking, Mm. whether it's down the street in Germany, like Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, or walking in parts of what's now Israel, in the case of Jesus, uh, or the Buddha walking through northern India. And so that whole idea of, um, yeah, maybe hiking, even if you're not trying to do a meditative thing, demanding attention, cultivating a quieting down of the mind a kind of calming that makes it easier to pay attention it okay. may me basically be the the first you know zen practice hiking overlap connection thing that sort of jumps out so there's a lot of that in the book but as we all know you know not every hike is created equal just like Not every period of meditation on the cushions or every trip to our church or to our mosque or to our shul is the same. In some cases, yeah, we can hit the trail and whatever is stressing us or whatever we're worrying about back home comes along with us for the walk. And so, what I've realized over the years is, um, yeah, the mind tends to calm down just by the act of walking, the simple thing you're doing as a hiker. But maybe there are certain things you can do, um, especially when the mind doesn't want to let go of what's going on back home to cultivate that calmness. So that's where, um, in large part in that chapter about ritualizing a hike, I'm sharing some practices that have worked for me to sort of facilitate that calming of the mind that, Ordinary happen, ordinarily happens at least to some extent while hiking, but can be enhanced by certain practices, whether it's things working with your breath. Um, one thing I like to do at the trailhead, and it's a way to, again, recognize that transition from space A to space B through the gate, is to just simply take a minute, um, take a few deep breaths, sort of land there on the trail. Now that I'm out of the car, I've put the keys in a pouch in the pack. The pack is on my body. And check in with the senses and just take a minute and say, okay, I want to be here and now. I can deal with that other stuff back home when I get back home at the end of the day or several days from now. And by checking in with the senses, okay, what am I hearing in this place? What does it smell like? Let me look around and really see what it is here what trees what plants what birds whatever it might be as a way to again ritualize the hike at the very beginning to really check in with the senses and say okay you know the way to be nature the way to connect with nature is through the senses let's start off very intentionally checking in with what i'm smelling seeing hearing and feeling in my body and maybe even tasting in my mouth as I start the hike here at the trailhead.
0: I love that. And so many examples are popping up in my head. Like I was recently reading something from Peter Siegel, who is the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR. Right. and he yeah, wrote, wonderful show. Yeah, and he wrote a book about um, running, and then he recently published a piece in the New York Times, I think, about why he runs without music in headphones, why he runs without his phone. And then I also thought about Alexander Hamilton, in the one of the U.S. founding fathers, who would pace up and down his garden and speak out loud and then the things that he was working through became his uh his federalist papers and so like there's so many benefits to having ideas and having clarity and making decisions that are important that comes out of these important moments where it's just you letting go and being with yourself you know
1: and maybe moving the body as well, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Sitting there at one's desk or in, in his case with I don't know, maybe a, a, a plume pen in hand yeah. and a little inkwell or with us sitting in front of our laptops. Yeah, I think there is, and this is you know what I was referring to a minute ago with certain philosophers and religious sages. Yeah. You know, what it is it about you know, that rhythm of walking, or maybe just moving your body to shake things up a little in your head, rather than just sitting still. And we think, yeah, if you're going to write a paper as a student, or really think through a problem, you should just sit in a room and just focus. But there is something about walking and thinking or walking and talking, you know, I find as a teacher, I don't know what it's like for you, Greg, but um, in my classroom, I never have um, a microphone. I may have a lectern to put my notes on, but I find as i 'm sort of teaching, working with students' ID in the moment, facilitating inquiry and discussion, kind of riffing on things the students are saying, I need to be walking around and I find it hard sometimes if I give a formal lecture. On campus or at another college or at a conference to have to stand there at a podium or lectern with a microphone and not only deliver a talk but then, in the moment respond to questions, I find it very difficult. Um, I really want to be able to walk around, which you know you can 't do in terms of leaving the mic, maybe if you have a lapel microphone, um, but yeah, whether it 's Hamilton or others, you know what is it about um, yeah moving our body? And especially if it's a rhythmic movement, and maybe especially if it's outside in nature, uh, where you are surrounded by beauty, where, you know, ideally, um, it does feel safe, not that going outside feels safe for all people. And I respect that.
0: So why do you think that everybody after listening to this and checking out your book should sort of maybe set aside some time now and then to put down their technology, walk slowly in the park or quietly in the woods?
1: Yeah, one of my concerns, um, and maybe it's both, what, for lack of a better expression, spiritual or maybe just psychological and ethical, is the extent to which, and I look at this a lot with my students, and they're usually nodding when I'm sharing ideas about this, but you know, what I, in some cases, and this will be in my next book, um, refer to as freneticism, And how, for so many of us, life has gotten so fast-paced, so busy, so involved in multitasking. Um, And there are reasons for that. I mean, some of us don't have the luxury of living on a trust fund or living on one salary. You know, some of us have to be scurrying to, you know, splice together several from our apartment and raise one's children. And, you know, I acknowledge that. Um, But there are at least, you know a subset of people, say, in this culture who don't, for practical reasons, necessarily have to scurry to that extent. And how is it that we've slipped into this? And how is it that, at least in some ways, technology, certain devices, certain apps, social media, or maybe strictly speaking, certain ways of using that technology has exacerbated the problem and had made, had a lot of people become even more frenetic um, in a sense, more scattered, more distracted. And I just think psychologically that impacts us just in terms of you know, our nervous system or the need for us not just when on vacation or for a couple of hours, maybe one day on the weekend to slow down and in a sense, just be rather than do, 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 Um and so I think in some respects, yeah, just in terms of um, our psyches and our spirits, um, it's very, very sad. And then the ethical part for me is, you know, we're at a time with the climate crisis and other issues where we need everyone paying attention. We need all hands on deck um, to really... See some, you know, certain problems like the cri- the climate crisis, the magnitude of the problem, uh, the impact it's already having, and the further impact it, you know, will certainly have down the line. And it's so tragic at times. We need people really paying attention to that as a kind of ethical commitment that it's so hard for us. Now, the problem is so daunting and terrifying that, you know, it's understandable that some of us may numb out or want to distract ourselves. But at a time where I I think we really need all of us to pay attention, there's a kind of perfect storm of distraction, whether it is, yeah, certain lifestyles, life in the fast lane, go, 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 constantly on our devices, Uh, certain things like getting caught up in, you know, celebrity culture, or sports culture, the distraction of TV, video games, etc. And uh, so I think, you know, part of what I'm I'm nudging in the book is the value of just simply calmly being in nature, and, you know, calmly being not doing in nature, um, as a a practice that does have certain kinds of spiritual benefits Um, similar to what happens on traditional religious pilgrimages when people kind of unplug, leave the stresses at home and allow themselves to be in a kind of sacred bubble, again, what Victor Turner calls a liminal state um, and experience that sacred time in a way that is restorative and spiritually rejuvenating and then be able to take that back home. And I think we're at a time in our culture where, you know, a lot of us, you know, separate from paying attention to issues like the climate crisis, just psychologically, um, I think that's something that a lot of people need. And going out in the woods isn't the only way to cultivate that. You know, prayer, certain types of religious practices at your local mosque or at your you know, synagogue or temple or church, you know, can do that as well. So I'm not saying that, you know, there's something especially unique and you must go on pilgrimage into nature as hiking, you know, to reap these benefits. Um, But however people can access that sort of calm spiritual time where you are in a sense being and breathing and in the world of spirit and depending on religion, feeling close to the sacred, feeling close to Allah or to Yahweh or to Jesus, to Krishna um, is so valuable, and I'm just concerned that a lot of people don't give that to themselves um, as much as we need these days.
0: Yeah, you know, I think about that all the time, as especially as the father of a five-year-old, about what is she going to inherit when she's 35, 55, 75, and it's terrifying. So we are coming to the end of our time together today. Um, But I'm curious if you can just describe what your next project is. What are you working on? What are you excited about?
1: Yeah, at this point in my life, um, and again, thinking about the state of the world, maybe I'm getting more reflective and existential as I move through my early, mid-60s and think about my own mortality. um, I'm feeling less inclined to write real traditional academic books that will be read by a few colleagues in the field and graduate students. Um, And so the next book, um, it's a little bit more back in the academic direction than Zen on the Trail, but it really speaks to what we were just talking about, my sense of how do I live, how do I pay attention, um, how do I live in my personal lifestyle, but also as a citizen in the face of the climate crisis – And so what I'm doing in this next manuscript, which I hope to complete by the end of this coming summer in 2019, is a book that's sort of pulling from resources, primarily in Buddhism and yes, primarily Zen, to think about not just um, how a simpler way of living with a lower carbon footprint um, is not only ethical and ecological, but in many ways, um, fulfilling and that book will probably pull from a lot of religions as well because as you well know virtually all religions have and it's not just in monastic traditions it's just for the lay the laity as well um certain value systems about simple living and in the manuscript i want to explore how zen monastic life or buddhist life does provide us who are maybe yeah very busy frenetic people multitasking um, in the fast lane or whatever um, provide resources for a kind of model or a template for a different kind of living that's not only more spiritually rewarding but is also simpler and more ecological and then in the I'm not sure yet but probably the second half of the book I'm shifting from individual change to larger issues, especially with issues or or questions like the climate crisis, Uh, not just individual change, but structural change. Um, What might be there in Buddhism? And it may not be very much. Buddhism hasn't traditionally had that speaking truth to power, social justice kind of commitment you see in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But what might be resources in Buddhism for speaking truth to power and thinking about larger structural issues, whether it's the nature of our um, political economy or campaign contributions or the power of the fossil fuel industry and what might be there in Buddhism to analyze those structural issues that are impediment in respects to really dealing with the climate crisis and mitigating the problem Um, But also thinking about would Buddhism offer certain new views of an alternative type of society? Or, for example, would Buddhism offer resources for supporting people over the long haul in their activism without getting burned out? Insofar as the kind of change that may be necessary to really deal with a climate crisis um, needs to happen quickly. It's really imminent. In some respects, it's dire But the magnitude of the problem and perhaps the magnitude of the structural change necessary to really deal with it, whether it's campaign finance reform or getting Congress to institute a carbon fee and dividend type approach, um, probably won't happen overnight given the nature of power and how it operates in our society. So might Buddhism offer resources for... Um, activism over the long haul, without anger, without othering, without exhaustion or despair. Um, and so that, that's <laughs> the modest little project <laughs> I'm taking on. And as you can see, there are probably four or five books in there. And so it may end up being two books. But um, but it's basically a drawing from my more academic um, knowledge and expertise in Buddhist ethics and seeing what might be there to help all of us Um Figure out a way to live differently that is more fulfilling and ecological, and also help us keep the eye on the ball and figure out how um, to take
0: action. Um,
1: who are you know very much concerned about this planet and future generations?
0: Excellent. Well, Dr. Chris Ives, I am super grateful to you today for spending so much time with me to talk about your new book, Zen on the Trail, and I eagerly look forward to your next project as well. You have gained a new reader in me, so thank you so much for your work, and uh, this has been a real pleasure for me.
1: Thank you, Greg. I really enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I hope we get a chance to continue it at some point.
0: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at, classicalideas at Outlook.com.